0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you that don't know, my name is Ryan, and I am the priest here, and I'm happy to have you join us for our new service, or sorry, our new series. Um, I've decided that I'm going to start new series on long weekends every time, because then it's like, oh, who's going to show up for it, you know? It's like a loyalty test. No, I'm just kidding. I don't believe in loyalty tests, but... Um, We have lots of our kind of community who are camping and doing wonderful things. And if you're listening to this online right now, we love you. You're allowed to go away. We're not mad at you. Um, But we're starting a new series here, and I'm going back to a text of scripture that I actually started four weeks ago before I went away on some holidays. Um, And I feel like we're meant to come back to it and sit in it for a little while, to really soak in it and ask some intentional questions. Now, this Sunday is Ascension Sunday, like Jeffrey mentioned, so part of it is a celebration of the ascension of Jesus and its implications. Now, I'm guessing if you don't come from the Anglican tradition, you haven't heard a lot of ascension-focused preaching. It's not a topic that gets covered enough, in my opinion. Um, And so we're going to touch on that a little bit today. Next week, we celebrate what's called Pentecost, which is the first fruit of Jesus's heavenly work, which is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. So that's kind of like a, a Sunday of anticipation, isn't it? The birth of the church through the presence of God and the Holy Spirit Um, should get us a little worked up, a little excited about that, and have anticipation. Now, what these two feasts mark for us is the beginning of a season devoted to intentionally cultivating a lifestyle and a community attuned to his presence. That's a big truth, is that God is available, And so we as a church, in our gathering, but also in our individual lives, we want to cultivate a life of his presence, don't we? Or do we like the idea of Christianity just being theoretical? No, we want the real deal. We want to live in it and know it. Yes? So, I think what we want in this season is that we could be so bold to ask, we want a Fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in this church. Does that sound nice? So, how do we do that? I think we ask that of Jesus. We sit in the scriptures about that, and we put our faith in Him to determine what that looks like. Okay. So here's the the questions, the main questions. I want to start to answer in this series as we sit in this text of Scripture. When people talk about a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit on His church, what's a phrase out of the Bible that gets used most often? New wine. That's a phrase that you hear a lot, especially in charismatic communities like I grew up in. New wine is this idea of like new outpouring of the Holy Spirit in new ways. And the church to be that new wineskin. So we're going to get to talking about some of those things in the weeks to come. So I think the first thing we have to answer, though, is what is new wine? What does Jesus mean by that in this text of Scripture? And what does it mean for us to want that? Okay. Then to ask, how is that new wine received? From there, we want to ask the question, what does it mean for our church to be a new wineskin, to be willing to move with that new outpouring? And then one of the uniquely Anglican questions I think we're going to ask, and I think is very helpful, is how does this idea of new wine and tradition fit together? Does That seem helpful? Because I think sometimes the way it gets talked about is that those two things are at odds with one another. So I want to talk about how do those things work together. Okay? And then how do we express that in this cultural moment in our church? How does that show itself in the songs we choose, the music we play, the culture we create as a congregation? Now, you might be thinking, shouldn't Ryan just be talking to our worship teams about that? I think it's helpful for us to consider this as a collective group because we all share responsibility in this, right? Do we get Marshall up here just to put a show on for us? No. Should he put his hat out and we can throw some coins in it? No, this is a shared responsibility, the worship Culture of our church, isn't it? So, I want us to be able to talk about that together and pursue it together, not just expect a small percentage of our congregation to do it for us. Understand the difference of that? So, then in the end, what we want is this kind of text of scripture and this season to inform the vision for us of our congregational worship at Christ Church. Now, before we can do that, let's familiarize ourselves with what we covered four weeks ago in this text of Scripture. Now, verse 14 begins the question that starts this conversation. John's disciples come to Jesus and ask him this, why do your disciples not fast? Now, I covered this more in depth, so you can go back and listen to that sermon if you're catching up on this. But here's another way to say this question. Why do your disciples get to be happy? I think that's part of the question here. Why do your disciples get to be happy? I think the question is trying to figure out the fundamental way that Jesus' disciples are relating to God. Because for John's disciples, it's quite a bit more religiously intense in some ways. Because the question I think they're asking is, why aren't you more serious than even John has been? Why aren't you and your disciples rending your clothes in humble repentance? Why aren't you covering your head with ashes to remember your lowliness? Why aren't you in the desert eating honey and locusts and wearing uncomfortable clothing? Why is following you, Jesus, full of joy and freedom? That's actually a tough question for them to figure out. Now, fasting is common. Most world religions, um, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's commanded in the Old Covenant for different reasons and for different times and different seasons. But for John's disciples, the main thing that fasting is communicating is that we will not worship this world like everyone else is doing. We want Yahweh. We want God. We want salvation. And we're not going to just participate in the cultural norms of idolatry, of worshiping all these other things. So is John's reason for fasting a good reason? Yes. It is a very good reason. It's a statement saying, I'm not, we're not going to be like this. We want the real way, the good way, God's way. And we don't just want to play at religion. We want the real thing. So their fasting is really uncomfortable and really serious. It's not just a pharisaical presentation to the world. They really did it and they lived it. But then Jesus comes on the scene, the fulfillment of everything they've been hoping for, and they're going, he seems to carry this a lot lighter. That's confusing to a spiritually serious person. What fasting is, is it's an intentional or created state of mourning. It recognizes that there's something in humanity saying, none of this satisfies me. None of this world, no matter how much I get my hands on of it, is not satisfying. Fasting embraces that. Fasting says, I recognize none of this is going to do the trick, so I'm going to stop eating it, because I want something better. Do You see that? I want the real thing. So fasting, first, I think, in one way, rejects idolatrous dependency on things. And secondly, highlights and accentuates that hunger of dissatisfaction so that you can look for the real thing. And I think we go without... To hear the deeper grief of our hunger. To understand the fact that the reason I'm so hungry is that I long for God and only having God will satisfy me in the way I need most. But here's the thing. This isn't the hallmark of following Jesus. The hallmark of Jesus is going to be showcased in three analogies in the rest of this text of Scripture. And the three analogies are this, a wedding, a garment, and a wineskin. And we only have time today, which is going to drive you nuts, to look at one of them, the one that I've already talked about in a different sermon, but I'm going to look at it again. And the first analogy is this, the wedding. So Jesus answers in verse 15 and says, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So wedding guests mourn, I've talked about this at length, before wedding feast, as they wait for the groom and the bride to arrive, right? Once the groom and the bride arrive, what do you do? The feast commences, right? It's no longer appropriate to continue on fasting because the celebrations have begun. Now, if you're at a wedding and the feast begins and somebody's sitting back, folding their arms in front of their chest, and not eating. Who is that person? What are they communicating? It's probably the ex-boyfriend. That's my guess. Right? The guy's sitting there going, it's the one that got away. You know? Or it's the family members who are in, like, what? Big disagreement with the reason for the celebration. Right? Refusing to participate says something, doesn't it? It says, I'm not actually in on this celebration. I don't agree with this celebration. And me not eating is a statement. Right? That kind of thing. So Jesus is saying that. It's not appropriate to fast, to to view the primary act of following Jesus in this new way is not fundamentally about fasting, about mourning. It's fundamentally about celebration. That's helpful, isn't it? Here's the thing. It's harder. Celebration is harder. We'll unpack that a bit. Now the reason for the celebration, Jesus says, is the bridegroom is here. So the primary nature of following Jesus is one of celebration because of his presence, because of his availability. In the last sermon about this, I said, his nowness and his nearness. That's the reason for the celebration. Do we believe that? Is that good news? So God is not far off. This faith is not theoretical. It's present here now. And this changes everything. We do not worship a God who is evasive. We worship a God who's present. We do not worship a God who dangles carrots all the time saying, if you prove this, if you do enough of this, you get this. That's not the nature of God. God is present and God is doing the work of salvation. And it's available in the here and now for you and me. That's the fundamental of the gospel, yes? So the Christian spirit or the spirit of Christianity is to experience this. To know this. To be impacted by it and to receive and enjoy it. This should greatly inform the culture of our worship. Shouldn't it? And here's... I think when we talk about worship, and we talk about music in the church, so much of it just becomes this, well, we do these songs because they've always been done. and It's nice to sing songs. And it would be kind of boring if there wasn't music. And You know, there's all these varying degrees. And there's some people that think it should be like this, and other people think it should be like this. And so what we do is we recreate scenes of Braveheart, and we fight each other to the death, to see who decides, right? Isn't that the way it should work? No. Right? Music is a complicated thing in a multi-generational context, isn't it? It's like putting everyone in a car and going, who controls the radio? So what we're trying to get at, I think, here, is there are more transcendent, higher priorities than that. We'll get to those things. We'll answer some of those questions. But we can't answer them rightly if we don't answer the fundamentals. This gathering, this community, is all about enjoying the reality that God has come in flesh, died a sacrificial death to save us from sin has been resurrected from the grave and defeated sin and death, and is currently ruling and reigning and triumphing over evil. That is our fundamentals, yes? And so it's all about enjoying not just the idea or the thoughts about that, but the reality of the implications of that on our normal lived experience in such a way that we genuinely sing for joy, honestly. Not sing because it's expected. Not sing because we have to. Not sing because it's just always been done, but sing because we have to. From inside, knowing what we know, having experienced what we've experienced, of the reality of salvation, I have to sing, even though I'm a bad singer. That's actually what we're describing here. That's the fundamental nature of Christian worship. does that sound good? But what does it do? It compels us to go, okay, I've heard of who Jesus is, but have have I received it by faith? Do I trust it? Do I depend on it? Do I live in it? Do I know it from experience? Do I hold to it in my darkest moments? Is it my everything? Because if it is, then it will come out of me. It, It happens out of me if I truly believe that. Now here's the beautiful thing about this analogy. Jesus says... Shouldn't the guests eat the feast? But we're not just guests. We're not just friends of the groom. We're something even more than that. Now, have you ever gone to a wedding where the wedding party is just like so authentically celebrating the moment? And it's like when the song comes on for the dance, they just erupt. And it's this big dance party. Have you ever been in one of those? And it's just the most authentic thing you've ever seen. And then you go to like a white wedding where they barely dance. That's a, I, I've seen the difference where I'm like, we go to a wedding, we're all kind of standing around going, dance a little. You know, everyone's kind of like dancing scary. And then you go to a wedding that's just a full-blown honest eruption of joy. You can't really manufacture that, can you? You might get some ladies who will try, but it just doesn't quite go over. But like the real thing, a full eruption wedding, where people are excited about it. So we're, we're saying we want an authentic celebration, but even more so, we need to go further and say we want to celebrate and feast because Jesus calls us his bride. We as the church, not as individuals, but as the church, are the bride waiting for the groom. And Jesus uses this analogy on multiple occasions. It even shows up in the book of Revelation. The end of all things, when heaven comes to earth, that's how it's described. as a groom coming to his bride. The primary focus of our worship must be on our love for him as a bride's would be for her groom. What is the bride most excited about to have on her wedding day? Is it the food? Is it the guests? Or is it the one she loves? You'd hope, right? You'd hope is that. The truth is, I, I think it's an overused phrase, and I think it goes both ways. So, as, as a minister, I do a lot of weddings. And I've had bridezillas, and I've had groomzillas. Okay? And I've had mother in law zillas, and I've had father in law zillas. I've had them all. But the healthy ones, the good weddings, what is everyone focused on? It's the marriage. The bride to her groom and the groom to her his bride. It's not about my big day. It's about our marriage. Right? That's the difference. And those ones that are about my big day, are, they're not that fun. Because everyone's trying to live up to some invisible standard that we don't know about. I saw one wedding on social media where they, it came to the moment where it said, now the groom may kiss the bride and they went to kiss each other and the photographer yells out from the back, not yet! Because they weren't in position to take the photo. That's weird. <laughs> right? That's missing the forest for the trees. It's about the marriage, it's about that moment more than it's about the photo. More than it's about the videographer. And that's what we have. Our, our culture today is more focused on can we have the appearance of something valuable instead of the essence of something valuable. Right? And we can do the same thing in the church with our worship. If we could just have the highest quality musically then it looks like we really know how to worship. But the essence is missing. And if the essence is missing, we're missing everything, aren't we? I needed that emotional background music. Thank you. So the whole point of this analogy though is to get us to a point to go, if the guests should celebrate, how much more so the bride, right? Because that's what the songs are. We're singing as a bride to her groom. And the time of union is now. And every Sunday is a reunion with Jesus. That's the whole purpose of this gathering. Is to go, we as the bride are coming to reunite with our Savior. Now music, when it's done well, moves and shepherds our emotions towards Christ. Rightly, they pastor our emotions, our minds towards the one who deserves it. It pastors our mind to think about the right things about Jesus. And pastors our emotions to feel the right things about Jesus. And pastors our bodies, shepherds them, into expressing that rightly towards Jesus. Should our worship be only intellectual? The right things are on the screen. We can all go home happy. Is that enough? Should we just feel things? We felt things today. We can go home happy. But all the songs were about us and you know secondary things and esoteric things. And you could have sang it about anyone. Couldn't even tell it was about Jesus. But we felt something. Is that good enough? Or we sang the right songs and we had some feelings and we kept our bodies under control. Does that feel like enough? Is that authentic to the human experience? Right? The mind should think rightly about God, the heart should feel fully about God, and the body should express that, yes? Isn't that what it means to be human? So our songs, our music, our culture together should be saying, look, this is our groom. Praise Him. We are His bride. We receive Him. That's what our worship should be saying. It should speak rightly of Him. The most important parts of Him. It should make us feel rightly about Him. The most important parts of us. And we should be able to do that collectively together with some self-forgetfulness. Like we're just so enamored with him, we're not thinking about us. Isn't that, doesn't that seem right? And then this whole analogy continues to work out to say the feast itself is lavish. And the feast is has been planned by the Father. He's been arranging this marriage in the best way possible. For eons to come, has laid out a feast of salvation and grace and provision. It's his love and the creation and his blessing and his wisdom that has made this event possible. And the Son is present making this union possible. That we feast on the accomplishments of Jesus' work to make us fit to be His bride. Redeeming us out of slavery, saving us from sin, clothing us in beauty. Jesus has done that work to win His bride. And, And the feast then is on His salvation in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So what Jesus makes possible The Spirit makes actual inside of you and me. It's a feast of salvation. A feast on His kingdom. A feast on the world to come. Now, Jesus gives a caveat at the end of verse 15. He says, look, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So here's the thing. I don't want to paint it in such a way as like coming to church should be this utopian ecstatic experience. Because what's the reality? We live in a broken world still, don't we? And we come in in a broken state. So Jesus is helpful here. He's not being unrealistic and he's not leaving his disciples with confusion. They're going to have good reason ultimately in Him to celebrate. But they're also going to have good reason for fasting and mourning in the Christian life. Just like there's good reason for songs of lament in our worship. There's some church experiences you can go to. It's like all praise all the time. And when you're going through a season of grief and sorrow and hardship and you're Feeling the weight of your own sin, and you go to church and you're just like, I got no gear for this because I'm in a dark season. You ever felt something like that? The church should have emotional range in its worship. So, why do we end up having that need for fasting, for mourning? There's three main reasons. The first is because Jesus will not remain physically present with his church. So when he's teaching this, he has yet to be crucified, yes, yet to be resurrected, and yet to be ascended. But he will. So our union with Jesus is not perfected yet. There's more to come. So the first thing is that Jesus will go away. The second, though, is that sin and the devil have been defeated by Jesus, but not yet destroyed. That's the reality we live in. And thirdly, sin and evil are still at work in us. At work in other people, it is at work in the world, and that's painful. That's reason for mourning, right? So in the age of the ascension, which we are in now, what we have is Jesus having come in the flesh, perfectly conquered sin and death in his cross, having risen victorious over it, is now ascended into heaven. So he completes his earthly ministry and begins his heavenly ministry. That's an important distinction to be made. Jesus is still working. You hear me? He's still got work to do and he's doing that from his throne now having completed what he needed to do here. He's still in the process of winning hearts. He's still in the process of conquering evil completely and destroying it with the coming judgment. There's much work ahead that Jesus is going to complete. And we're in that in-between zone. He's completed His work on earth and now is in the process of completing His heavenly work. Fasting embraces the pain that we feel in the in-between. In order to identify where am I hungry because I'm eating poorly or sinfully of the creation instead of of Christ, And where am I hungry for Christ to complete His salvation? Our worship needs to express both of this. We need to have the now and the not yet. We need to enjoy all that's available while we look forward to all of it being finished. So when we fast, either by choice or by suffering, we do so, though, as a bride at her wedding feast who is absolutely enamored with the presence of her groom and his befriended hunger in anticipation for the next course of the meal. That's how I think we should view it. We have our groom. We love him. We are enjoying the presence of salvation, but there are certain parts of the meal that are still yet to come, and we're just in between courses. So when we're saying goodbye to a loved one, or when we're going through physical suffering, we know we have our groom, and we love him, and we're awaiting full healing, full completion in the age to come. Make sense? So here's where we end. I think this first stage in terms of the vision for our worship is that our highest good needs to be the pursuit of this new wine. Jesus is the new wine. The presence of Jesus makes everything new and different. He is the drink that we're excited for. And Jesus' vision for the whole of our life in Him is one of genuine celebration and feasting because of His incarnate life, sacrificial death, victorious resurrection, and triumphant ascension. Here's the fundamental of our worship. God is here, and He has brought salvation. That's the fundamental of our worship. God is here, and He has brought salvation. If we authentically are receiving that, believing it, trusting in it, depending on it, eating it, what will come out of us? Worship. So the new wine is this combination of God pouring Himself out, but it's also a question of who will drink it? Who will take it in, this great gift? And the Bible has no problems encouraging you to get drunk on it. You're too scared to laugh at that. No, no, for real. The Bible pushes it to the point on saying, don't be drunk on earthly wine. Be drunk on this. Be so full of it so filled up with it that you're self-forgetful and joyful and exuberant about it. The Bible uses it to say there are earthly comparisons that say you can get high, you can get drunk, you can get inebriated on these things in this world, or you can get drunk on the new wine, which is Jesus and His salvation. That's a wild statement. That's not a statement I personally have the confidence enough to say without biblical backing. But that's the way the New Testament Scriptures talk about it. Get so ridiculously inebriated on the Gospel that you're self-forgetful, joyful, and having the time of your life. That's wild. So, that's the fundamental of our theology of worship in this church. Isn't that something? God is here and He has brought salvation who will drink. He's made us His bride, united Himself to us and invites us to feast on that love. So when it comes to the actual practical roles of our service leaders, our worship leaders, our musicians, the priest, we are servants of this feast. And those who are best qualified to serve in those roles are those who are living in and for God's presence and God's salvation. I think here's what I've seen in those who are really gifted and anointed for these roles, is you feel like, oh, they're touching it. They're touching the thing I want. You know, where they're in tune with his presence and know the reality of salvation for themselves. That's, when they serve in that spot with the ability to show that, that's the sweet spot. And you watch them and they place them and you're like, oh, they're touching it. I want that. Genuinely expressing it according to their personality. I'm not trying to kill anyone's personality in these roles. We want the full range of human emotion with a real living knowledge and enjoyment of Christ. But here's the thing. The importance of those roles is to point others to the source, to help them drink deeply of Christ's new cup. That's the point of this role. Those roles, though, because that's the high call of them, should not get in the way of the congregation doing so. We could do that by accident. Sometimes I feel like that. I'm like, that sermon is not a good sermon. It was so cumbersome, it felt like it kept people from Jesus. But then you hear people come back, and they're like, I've never felt closer to Jesus. I'm like, why does it work like that? (laughs) So frustrating. It's good news to me, ultimately. And then I do, like, a good sermon, and I walk away, and it's just silence. I'm like, I thought I nailed that one. (laughs) But those, like, really bad ones, people are like, I met with Jesus. It's just good news. Because the point is, Jesus is going to do this work. Right? Even when we do stumble and get in the way, Jesus still does this work. But the role, I think, when we take it seriously, when we honor it, that's what we're trying to do. I think my hope is, we want you to forget we were here because you've become so overwhelmed by the beauty of Jesus. That's what we want. Because Jesus came for this moment. Jesus died for this moment. Jesus rose for this moment. And Jesus is currently ascended, pouring out his spirit upon his people for this moment. That's the confession of our faith. The most fundamental beliefs we have. And all of it points to the fact that Christ is present and He has brought salvation for sinners. Is this good news? So let this be at the heart of our worship. Let's turn our attention to the table. If you would, just if you're comfortable with it, close your eyes. In preparation.